Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's verse 31 and 32. If you're able to, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe this to be Holy Scripture. Matthew chapter 5. It'll be just verse 31 and 32. And we continue this series from the Sermon on the Mount. Here now is the word of the Lord. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Please be seated. Before anybody starts boiling tar and gathering feathers, I need to say a couple of things. This is a passage that places a minister in a no-win situation. During the next 25 minutes, some of you are going to say that I'm too harsh on the matter, and some will probably say I'm too soft on the matter. It's a topic that's too sensitive to let our emotions have us say things that later we might regret. And so let's not focus on how this makes us feel. Let's focus on what does God's word actually say. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Lord, give us grace this morning. Help us to always know your grace so that we may extend it to others. Help us to seek what your word actually says on these crucial matters. Help us to love you more than we love our comfort and our own opinions. Help us to look to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. <clears throat> Let's begin. Today we live in a society in which 50%, 50% of marriages eventually end up in divorce. Some of those that didn't end up in divorce end up in sort of a, an existing form of an ongoing separation. They may live under the same roof, but they're in a, a spiritual separation in a lot of ways. It's heartbreaking for both the husband and the wife, and in far too many cases there is such bitterness and resentment and anger. I might add that very often each individual feels as if they were the innocent party, and yet they also find that the places that they go to for help don't give them any help. They go to for spiritual and emotional help, and even their churches sometimes are unwilling to be helpful to you. It's not a new problem. I ask you to uh, remember back in the Old Testament, Moses essentially tolerated divorce and remarriage, and we'll re-explore that in a second together. But in this passage, Jesus speaks to the original intention, to the original design. He says, in God's original creation, marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman, it is not to be broken unless certain very specific conditions are met. And he's saying this because in first century Jewish society, many adopted the view that the way to avoid breaking the sixth commandment, or seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, the way to avoid that is just end one marriage and enter into another. Problem solved. But they had rationalized the issue, much like they had done with the other commandment, thou shalt not murder. And we discussed that two weeks ago. In doing so, they missed the point. And much like the way that we can miss the point of biblical teaching. 
Now, I'm going to borrow a number of the main points from a man named John Piper. You might be familiar with him. Longtime pastor in Minneapolis. And I think he has a very thorough way of looking at this matter of divorce and remarriage. Probably a more thorough explanation than I can offer you. So I'm going to borrow from some of his writings because he approaches it with a very honesty and yet with a, a compassion that I think is vital for us to hear. So let's take a quick review on why did God create marriage? If we recall the passages of scripture we quote in the wedding ceremony, they focus heavily on the picture of Christ and the church and that relationship. Even back in Genesis chapter 2, there are pointers to Christ, the Messiah who is foretold to come. And as Christ keeps his covenant with his bride, the church, then the meaning of marriage has to include the understanding I'm going to quote from Matthew 19.6. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder or separate or pull apart. This is God's plan for marriage. and We, we just can't get wishy-washy on that principle. But in Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, Jesus knew that those Pharisees in general were, as Matthew 12, 39 describes it, an adulterous generation. He knew how they had rationalized and defended their own divorces, so he, he points them back by answering a question with a question. They ask him, can you divorce your wife for any reason? And he says, well, what did Moses say? Well, the Pharisees answered, mm. sometimes it double clicks, doesn't it? The Pharisees answered, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her, meaning his wife, away. And then Jesus says to him, because of the hardness of heart, he allowed that. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. The exchange tells us that some of the things that they did in the Old Testament were not God's expressions for all time. They were records of how God managed the sin of a particular people in a particular time. Theologians use a phrase on this. Is the passage descriptive or is it prescriptive? You might say, well, what's the difference? When something is descriptive in the Bible, it would mean that it probably applies to a specific place and a specific people at a specific time. When it's considered to be prescriptive, it means that it applies for all time, for all people much like the Pharisees did with a number of other aspects of Old Testament law, they lost the reality. Divorce was never part of God's original plan. Divorce is the result of the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, just like everything else that's gone wrong in the world since then. And because of the hardness of their hearts, divorce was somewhat tolerated in Moses' time, but it was also regulated. Jesus says here it was not God's will for his people, what happened was a reflection of the hardness of the human heart. They used it as a way to manage their sin because they refused to listen to Moses. Jesus points the Pharisees and, frankly, points us back to God's will and original creation. And he quotes from Genesis, showing us the way that it was supposed to be, way back in Genesis chapter 2, the chapter before the fall into sin. He says the following, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here's, here's the point. God's will regarding marriage in Genesis 2 was not changed 
by his toleration of divorce under Moses. Divorce under Moses was descriptive of that time and place. God's plan for marriage was prescriptive. It was intended for all time. So can you see that difference? Now, which conclusions might we draw from this? I would suggest, and John Piper would suggest, let's let's be fair here, there are three conclusions we can draw. First one, marriage is a profound union. Jesus said, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Marriage is that kind of union, just as Christ and the church are one body, as described in Romans 12, 5. This is prescriptive. It is not just descriptive. I mean, it is, but it's primarily prescriptive. It's intended to apply for all time. Second conclusion, though, is that this union of one flesh is the work of God. It is not the work of man. Jesus says, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder or pull apart. The point being that even when a couple agrees to get married and a minister or a justice of the peace or a judge legalizes the union, the main factor at work is God. It says what God has joined together. It's not just the physical union, but the spiritual union. That's the basis for the belief that God is the acting agent in the event of a marriage. And then the third conclusion would be the rest of the statement, what God, let, let not man put asunder what God has joined together. Now, I, I might add that the Greek word that's translated as man, anthropos, it really isn't referring to male instead of female. It's referring to human instead of divine. Therefore, since God is the one who has joined the man and the woman in marriage, as humans, we should not separate what God has joined together. Now, you might say, well, goodness, Jim, that's really pretty harsh. Well, my response to that would be, until about 50 years ago, that was the accepted viewpoint of both Roman Catholic and Protestant churches. This is God's prescription for how it was supposed to be. Jesus tells us to see the original intention Don't be like the rationalizing and the hardness of heart of the Jewish leadership in Jesus' time. And I might add, it's quite consistent with these antithesis statements here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus uses this structure where he's saying, you were taught this, but here's what it's supposed to mean and why it was given. He points them back to the original meaning before the fall into sin. He tells them of God's intention in the creation of marriage. So in the past 12 minutes or so, I think I've come down pretty solidly on the traditional scriptural understanding of the issue. We can't be soft on the principle. We can't attempt to reinterpret the Bible to say something we want it to say or something we think better fits the society in which we live. What God has said was prescriptive. It was God's intention in creating the institution of marriage and for that matter in creating us as male and female. Now, that having been said, Scripture tells us over and over again, while God is a holy and righteous God, he is also a forgiving and a merciful God. If it were not so, we would all be facing eternal separation from him because we have all sinned in many other ways. And so for this reason, divorce and remarriage can't be treated by us in a way that it's not treated by God. In other words, we can't be soft on the principle, but we also can't fall into a distorted gospel in which people are made to at least 
think that perhaps Christ's blood is sufficient for all sins except this one. That leads you into the bottomless pit of legalism, a pit in which far too many Christian believers have not just fallen into, I think they've taken up residence there. But there are some crucial questions that we need to ask here. We all wish the issue was absolutely black and white. Sometimes it's not, especially for the women when the question of her safety and the safety of her children are a factor. For example, consider this situation. If an abusive and a completely unrepentant husband is a danger to the safety of the wife and the children, how does she handle that? He has caused severe damage by his sin. That marriage may not survive, and she may have little choice but to leave for the safety of her children and herself. You see, sin causes every problem in the world, and it clouds the clarity of the solutions. It's just one example of how destructive unrepentant sin can be. But let's look at three other scenarios. The first one should be pretty easy, but there are people who attempt to make it not easy. Most of us know that if your spouse dies, that marriage is now complete, it is dissolved, you are free to remarry. I think scripture is very clear on this. It doesn't mean you must, and it doesn't necessarily mean you should. It means that you have the option. You might say, well, who would challenge that? There are individuals that I've run across who take an approach of marriage is so holy, so sacred, that it is one and done. When the spouse dies, too bad. That's your only opportunity. I think scripture very openly says differently. If somebody makes that suggestion to you, don't listen to them. They're not giving you a biblical point of view. Next item. Jesus says if you divorce and the person you were married to is still alive, to marry another person is an act of adultery. And so people ask this question. They say, all right, I went through a divorce and I'm remarried. Does the Bible say that I should leave this marriage and attempt to go back to the other one? And here's my answer. My answer is no. You shouldn't do that because that marriage you're now in is a real marriage. Now that it's done, it shouldn't be undone by man. God is the acting agent in the marriage. What God has joined together, let not man pull apart. And this is where I think some very traditionally conservative churches feel tension. And the reason for the tension is because they forget something. Here it is. There's plenty of sins in their lives, past, present, and future, and those sins, by grace through faith, are covered under Christ's blood. Just because we sin doesn't mean he turns his back on us, whether it be over a divorce or some other sin. And of course, his grace and his forgiveness does not give us license to go out and sin again, but when we come to him in repentance, he forgives and restores and blesses those who are his believers. What about King David? I reference him quite a lot. He broke about every commandment that there is, but then he got up and he ran back to God in repentance. Many of the other patriarchs of the Old Testament, it's similar stories. And for this reason, please hear this. Please hear this. If you have been through a divorce and you have since remarried, God will bless you as well because of your repentant heart and his saving grace. His shed blood is sufficient for you and for me. Never doubt that. And don't listen to somebody who tries to make you think different, differently. Last question, probably the biggie. 
Jesus says, don't divorce. Yes, that is what he says. You might say, but are there any exceptions to that? Well, this morning's passage, Matthew 5.32, Jesus uses a phrase, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. He's referring to breaking the seventh commandment, and in that instance, he's stating a grounds for divorce because the spouse has been unfaithful. The scripture actually gives two conditions, although there isn't universal agreement on this. Adultery, Matthew 5.32 and 19.9, but also abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Two conditions in which the wronged spouse has the option, not the obligation, but the option to divorce. Now, forgiveness and reconciliation is always to be preferred. Sometimes it's not possible. So there are limited biblical grounds for divorce. But I ask you to consider a situation like Joseph and Mary. Matthew chapter 1 describes this. Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away privily, is what the classic translations say, meaning privately. In view of what Jesus had said, Joseph would have had a basis to do what he proposed to do if Mary had been unfaithful. But the angel came to him in a dream and said, Joseph, what Mary says is true. Believe her. Trust God. So Joseph didn't go ahead with his plan, even though he would have been justified in doing so if Mary had been lying to him about the source of her pregnancy. But you see, most of the time our marriages aren't like Joseph and Mary. There may not have been unfaithfulness. Very often marriages are just the people aren't getting along. And so they decide to end the marriage. Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. That's not what God's intention was. Now, please hear me again. The fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3 is something that either God permitted or he was surprised by. And if you fall into the second of the two categories, you have a very low view of God. Therefore, he permitted it. And when that happened, he didn't abandon Adam and Eve when they sinned, did he? Instead, he clothed them, and he put in place a plan to redeem all of his creation, even to one day send his only begotten son to come and to pay the price they could never pay and we could never pay. When you fall into sin, whatever that might be, he doesn't abandon you if you come to him in repentance and faith, just like David. Now, this issue is, is complex. We need to extend grace to one another when we disagree on this. It's very emotional, too. We need to remember grace matters for all of us. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees in which you quote the law to others, but you don't apply it to yourselves. The way that I had it explained to me years ago was the following. When you point your finger at somebody, where are the other three fingers pointing? Recognize that. So let's review this. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the following things. The commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes. People lost what that meant in the first century. I think we've lost what it means today. In the first century, they seemed to think it was more about stealing someone else's property, or thou shalt not covet. But in original creation, it was clear God designed us 
male and female. He designed marriage to be a unique covenant that lasts as long as both individuals are alive. Moses tolerated divorce during his time because it was the best option he had available to him because their hearts were so hard they would not listen to what God has said. But Moses' toleration of divorce does not mean that it was God's will for his people. So the implication is the following. If you go through a divorce, it is better to remain single if your divorced spouse is alive. But if you do remarry, and you both are believers who come to Christ asking for repentance and restoration, because marriage should be between two believers, he will bless your marriage because he is the acting agent in a marriage. God does not abandon those who trust him for their salvation. Please remember this. Please remember this. This is so vital. Since we accept that it's true, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, it's also true that God forgives and restores all who come to him and ask for redemption. Because this is the reality of life in a fallen world. Divorce happens. It happens to Christian people. Because even as redeemed born-again believers, sometimes we do step outside of God's will. That's the heart of what sin is, isn't it? We step outside of God's will. We somehow think we know better. Because even as Christian believers, we tend to have a pride problem. In some cases, it's a nuclear-powered, steroid-injected pride problem. But if on this issue or any other issue, we step outside of God's will, does he say, all right then, I am finished with you, I will turn my back on you, I will disown you, I will never again show grace to you? Is that what God did with Adam and Eve? He had every right to have. The Bible tells quite a different story, doesn't it? And therefore, when someone who is going through a divorce comes to you or comes to me, is asking for help and guidance and a sense of hope, don't make them feel as if what the church says to them is, you may be acceptable to God because of Christ's blood, but you're no longer acceptable to me. I don't think that attitude is God-honoring. Unfortunately, you can still find it in some churches. And may that never be the case here at First Union. Bottom line, we have to accept God hates all sin, and that includes divorce, Malachi 2.16. We cannot deny that. We can't nuance it to the point where we get so soft that we're not even being honest with ourselves. So yes, God hates all of our sin. But God loves us. He sent his only begotten son to die for us. And that's why we have law and we have grace. God is holy and he is merciful. And he has extended mercy to you and to me because we need it. And because we need to extend it to others, including, especially, those who have been through a divorce. Perhaps one they did not want, but it was their spouse who left them. Please remember that. Ugh. There's just one more thing. I now want to speak to people who have never been through a divorce. If you realize that in the past, at some point, you have treated a divorced person unfairly, you made them feel like they were less of a person, less of a Christian, someone who God loves less, 
Did you remind them that God still loves them? Did you remind them that his grace is sufficient for them? If they were a believer, they desperately needed to be reminded of that. If they weren't yet a believer, what a great opportunity to tell them that God is able and God is willing to save any who come to him in repentance and faith. If you've ever treated somebody going through a divorce like that, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see your own judgmentalness. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the door for an opportunity for you to properly and appropriately express your regret to anyone you treated wrongly. Ask the Holy Spirit to remind you when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The question we should all be asking ourselves on this issue is, what does Scripture actually say? Anything else is letting your emotions prevent you from asking that question. What does Scripture actually say? And I want to suggest to you this morning that on its whole, Scripture would tell us that churches are probably too soft on the issue and too hard on the people who have walked through this this difficulty. Those churches get too heavy on law and they get too weak on grace or they get too heavy on grace while denying the reason why they need grace. Given all the other sins in the lives of people who have never faced this particular difficulty, let us all be reminded, God is merciful. Christ's blood is sufficient for all who believe. And yes, that includes those who went through a divorce and in the course of time may have since remarried because that second marriage is still the work of God. What God has joined together, let not man pull apart. With that in mind, will you please pray with me? Lord, this is one of those very messy subjects. There are people here today who think that I've been too harsh and people who think that I've been too soft. I've had to ask the question, Lord, what does your word really say? I'm asking, Lord, that you will help me to always walk that thin line, to not compromise on what your word says, but also to not teach a distorted gospel in which people who have been through something, a terrible time, Maybe because of their mistake and maybe because not. But in any case, Lord, that to anybody who is truly repentant and seeking for help and seeking guidance, that your love would always be shared. Help us to never fall into a legalistic understanding that seems to have people think that divorce is the second unforgivable sin, that it becomes the equivalent of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the great Christian hope. I'm praying, Lord, for healing on this issue because there are people who love you, who know you as their Savior, and they've been hurt enough by what they went through. It doesn't help when fellow believers hurt them even more. Lord, may you bring conviction where it needs to be brought. May you bring encouragement where it is so desperately needed. And may you bring a sense of grace to all of us so that we recognize that even when we step outside of your will, indeed especially 
in those times that you are a graceful and loving God and that your only begotten son paid the price fully and completely and that he's coming again, perhaps very soon and until that day, may we live our lives recognizing the grace we have received. May we extend it to others. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name.